This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. This is David Lang speaking. I'm the Melbourne Shem Professor of Law at Duke University's School of Law. In our conversation today, I want to conclude the remarks I began to offer last month. On that occasion, I noted a recent Commerce Department and Patent Office study that suggested IP-intensive industries account for more than a third of America's gross domestic product and more than a quarter of American jobs. I asked whether so-called IP-intensive industries are truly dependent on intellectual property regimes or whether IP is instead a matter mainly of expectancy, something that figures, no doubt, in the business plans of many and perhaps most American businesses but that cannot truly be said to be essential to the success of those businesses. And I noted by way of anticipating the things I meant to say today, that when we look at a number of businesses familiar to all of us, we can see that IP does not play a universal role in ensuring successful competition, whether here or abroad. This is true even in settings in which one might most readily anticipate the necessity of high protection. In the case of automobile designs, for example, where creative expression is close to the center of the marketplace, but where no widespread use of design protection under law has ever played a significant role. And also in the case of fashion designs, of which much the same things can be said. Clearly, IP protection is not essential in these two industries at least not for the designs that contribute heavily to success. Trademarks do play a role, of course. We expect that the marks associated with auto manufacturers and fashion designers will guide us some of the way in our purchasing decisions, probably trademarks, and some other aspects of unfair competition can be said to be necessary up to a point. But copyright and patent law play little role in prompting aesthetic design, that is, the way these products look and the market appeal that follows, and only a relatively minor role in encouraging the development of new technologies, and even then only mainly in the automotive industry. But so far, I've merely offered examples of industries in which IP regimes appear to count for less than one might have supposed. What about other industries? The surprising fact appears to be that it is hard to think of a single industry in which IP protection, other than the law of trademarks and unfair competition, is truly essential. Mind you, I say essential, not conventional. In the entertainment industry, movies are the principal contender for protection as a necessity. But even movies would go on being produced if copyright were abolished. The face of the industry would change, yes, and the range and nature of movies produced would be affected in all likelihood, though mainly in the direction of a considerably wider and more inventive choice of subject matter and treatment, not to mention considerably lower barriers to entry for creators. But a thoughtful analysis will suggest that even in this industry, in which investment today is outsized, mainly because of copyright protection, 
for what would otherwise prove to be unjustifiable expenditures. With respect to this industry, motion pictures, the most that can be said is that we are accustomed to copyright, not that it is necessary. Meanwhile, it is even more difficult to argue the case for necessity in the remaining entertainment industries, the music business, publishing, theater, television, sports. In virtually all of these competitive arenas, the case for copyright remains the same. Conventional, yes, but necessary, no. And let us not imagine that I am concealing some vast body of empirical evidence for the truth is that I am not. The unhappy fact is that the empirical case for copyright as an incentive to creative productivity is thin at best. We could hardly expect otherwise. How could we have produced a rich body of evidence as to the plausibility of a world of creativity without copyright when on every hand and with increasing insistence on its necessity Copyright has been the only game in town. Now, much the same thing could be said of patent laws. We've known it. The empirical case for its necessity has been notoriously thin as well. As is true of copyright, the arguments for the necessity of patent law have been grounded as much in belief as in evidence. But the new America Invents Act does make some changes that may actually improve the case for patent protection. And on that ground alone, I think I shall set aside my reservations about the necessity of patent protection and confine my remaining remarks today to copyright. In any event, the fact is that copyright is the more problematic case. Copyright law may be counter-competitive, it is always counter-expressive. Now, it would be no trick at all to elaborate at book length on the propositions I have advanced thus far. In fact, my co-author and colleague Jeff Powell and I have done exactly that in a work published three years ago by Stanford University Press. The work is titled No Law, Intellectual Property in the Image of an Absolute First Amendment. And it makes the points that I want to emphasize here yet again. Copyright suppresses and discourages productivity and does so, I suspect, at least as much as it offers incentives to creativity. And once again, I ask, why is this the most problematic issue in intellectual property today? And I would answer by saying there are really two reasons. First, as to productivity, we really do have no way to know how to strike the actual balance between incentives and disincentives to creativity that follow from copyright. We know that both are present in the copyright regime and almost certainly in equivalent measure. Indeed, the one follows from the other. In every instance in which copyright is recognized, other expression is precluded or foreclosed. The government's brief in Golan versus Holder proudly acknowledged as much, and Justice Ginsburg's opinion in the case, which we was issued earlier this year, echoed the government's position, as if to celebrate the fact in a moment of triumph over both the copyright clause and the First Amendment. And this, of course, 
leads us to the second and ultimate reason why we should be concerned. As I have maintained in earlier podcasts, copyright no longer answers to the Constitution. The copyright clause has been denatured, thanks to Justice Ginsburg and five other members of the court. The First Amendment has been declared irrelevant. The public domain has no constitutional significance, or so she says. In effect, the court has left the building. Nothing remains now but Congress and its clients. Except us, of course, those of us, that is, who may continue to be skeptical when we encounter the kind of claims the Commerce Department and the Patent Office have given us in the report that has prompted my remarks last month and today. In offering them yet again, I am mindful of the fact that I have offered them before, but I am also unabashed at repeating myself, for these are the great issues of our time when matters touching upon intellectual property are broached. For the better part of 30 years, I have joined with others in efforts to advance the cause of freedom of expression beyond the claims of exclusivity that copyright promotes and defends. Years ago, Professor Lessig warned that this was an effort in which we appeared to be on the losing side. I am obliged to acknowledge that he seems to have been right, at least if the final score is to be totaled up as of this year. And yet I continue to believe that the engagement remains worthwhile and that the result remains no worse than in doubt. Resistance to the seemingly inevitable encroachment of the intellectual property regimes upon the public domain is still viable. Perhaps only the terms of the engagement need to be reconsidered. Again, let us confine the discussion to copyright for the sake of focus, as well as the urgency of the issue. In our book, Jeff Powell and I maintain that the principal objection to copyright should be located in that regime's insistence on exclusivity and its concomitant willingness to suppress some expressive works in order to encourage others. We acknowledged the plausibility of a regime in which little might change except to forego the dubious advantages and sad pleasures of exclusivity and suppression. We grounded our arguments in an understanding of the Constitution that I continue to believe in, namely the paramount sanctity of the First Amendment. I am unembarrassed in endorsing that position yet again. I am altogether unpersuaded by Justice Ginsburg's cavalier account of the subject in Golan. But I do suppose today that we must return to first principles and first questions. Let us set aside the Constitution if we must. Let us suppose the copyright clause in the First Amendment do not constrain Congress in enacting copyright laws. But do let us suggest that they frame the debate in political terms. Will a proposed law promote the progress of human knowledge or will it merely advance the fortunes of those who are its proponents? This is potentially a constitutional question. It is always a political question. Will the law abridge the freedom of expression that Congress may not abridge? Again, a constitutional question can also assume the dimensions or proportions of a political question. I am not mad. 
I understand that these are, in a sense, nothing more than the great constitutional questions redukes. And I realize that Congress has declined to consider them in a serious way, at least since Congressman Kastenmeier, who cared deeply about these issues, left office almost 20 years ago. But let us imagine that the mistaken emphasis on our side, again, on the side of those of us who have shared in the skepticism that has fired much of the so-called copyright wars of the past three decades. The mistaken emphasis on our side, as I say, has lain in our presupposition that these questions could ever be anything but political in action and in our resulting inattention to the field upon which the battles must be fought. Let us consider that constitutional questions of this sort can never hope to be addressed as if they were merely questions of law, of texts, or theory propounded. They cannot be, in at least one understanding of the matter, for the fact is that constitutional questions of this sort are, or may be, inevitably exercises in forensic skills, in advocacy, in the arts of the lawyer as practitioner. Let us understand then, for example, that it may have been a mistake to argue the First Amendment question in Golan against a concession that copyright is content neutral. It is not content neutral, I would say, not even in the better part of theory. But certainly it could not be content neutral in a petitioner's brief addressed to the court in a case like Golan. An argument to this effect was almost certainly bound to lose, as indeed it did. Let us learn from mistakes like this that theory, whether better or worse, does not win cases. And meanwhile, let us learn from our worthy political adversaries, if that is what they are, the value in serious exchanges about the facts of copyright. The Commerce Department and Patent Office published the report that prompted my remarks today in order, they said, to promote a better understanding of the industries where IP plays a particularly important role. I will say frankly that I think their methodology is flawed and their conclusions unpersuasive. In a word, I believe they overclaim. But I accord them respect for their effort. And I would say, it is time for those of us who remain skeptics to match them in their undertaking. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.